Good morning. Welcome to the Waking Up Thoughtcast. I'm your host, Amy Kay, and this is my face. What up? Yo, so, I mean, where to start? Let's start with when I got home from work last night. Okay, so I ordered the this, like, light projection ceiling thing um, sold by Bliss Lights. It's basically a nebula, and it has green laser pointers that kind of come out of it. And the thing rotates, and it has three different brightness settings, and it can also be static if you don't want it to move. And it just creates this awesome galactic nebulae effect in the bedroom, because obviously that's where I put it, because I've been pimping my room. I mean, pimping your ride is cool and all, but pimping your bedroom is the way to go. Let's take a sip of coffee. Check this out. Oh, what mug? Yeah, you want one? It's in the description. Go get one. They're pretty cute. I didn't even buy my own. My boyfriend had to bring me one from America because he got one. Well, two? One? Well, he got one, and he gave it to me. And it works for me because it's cute. It's small for my liking. I like a big-ass mug, but... If I'm going to sit and do this, it just makes sense to have my own mug. Done it? I can always make a second cup of coffee if I need to. It just is what it is. Anyways, back to this Nebula thing. It is so cool. Um, I stole the idea from Kelly Noodle. I was seeing all these ads on Instagram for that kind of stuff anyways because I tend to like light up, trippy kind of stuff just because. And um, that particular one... I saw what it looked like as she had posted a video in her story, and I was pretty stoked about it. So I got it yesterday. As soon as I got home, I took it out of the box. I plugged that sucker in, and I left it on for the last couple hours before the end of the night. And, oh, man, it was just so nice. It just creates such a nice ambiance, you know? It's all about that. It's all about that environment, that, that ambiance, that, that calming, chill, pretty, spacey effect. Because what else is more fun? Not many things. I mean, I, it's crazy because I got these... It's not crazy. It's not crazy. I just have these purple lights up in my bedroom. And I had them both on at the same time. And I think that the, the whole galaxy thing could be on its own. But it's not. Um, and I did turn off the light. And I'm having real brain stall problems this morning. <laughs> It took me a while to fall asleep last night. You ever have that? Sometimes I'll be super tired. I'll put my head on the pillow and I just won't fall asleep right away. It will take an hour or two or I just feel like I'm always on the cusp of sleep, but I never quite get there. Sometimes that happens when I'm overtired. Sometimes it just happens. Usually when it's around when I'm like I smoked weed for a bit, and then I'm not going to smoke weed for a bit. So the first couple of days are a bit of an adjustment. And you can't really see, but these bags be Prada, son. And I'm okay with that. Because the light is totally hiding them. But you know that feeling when you just feel kind of puffy? Your eyes just feel kind of puffy right here? I got that puffy feeling. No? Anyways... So I was dealing with this frustration yesterday because I was at work and um, 
there's a certain time in the day where my mind just seems to get the most intrusive thoughts. Now, I usually consider them more creative thoughts because I can take them and turn them around and kind of think about them in weird ways or, or consider them in different ways than I normally would just because I'm at an energy level in the day where I'm moving around and I'm active and I'm working and, you know, I'm not doing anything that's incredibly cognitively taxing. So my brain is just like, hey, we should use some of these thoughts and here, throw this one in there, throw this one in there, throw this one in there. Some of the things that I think are most creative to talk about always pop up for me during the time of the day where I'm least able to access my phone or able to access my notebook so I can write something down. And it's uber mega super frustrating, you know, because it's just it's good to remember shit to begin with. Obviously, it's a finite thing memory, so I can't remember everything. But I always feel like, ah, I got so much stuff to talk about. This is a cool topic. This is a different way. I haven't heard anybody else talk about this particular thing this way. And then, um... You know, it just falls out of the ether and right back in. <laughs> and yesterday was one of those days where it's especially prevalent if I'm listening to podcasts all day. You know what I mean? You're listening to other people's thoughts. They spark other thoughts in your head. And then you're just like, oh, well, I remember this thing I heard from a podcast I heard like an hour ago. How do they relate? People are talking about this one thing right now or those, these two things or whatever the things may be. And really... Of course, depending on who you listen to or what you listen to, you always hear the same things kind of mentioned right now. So a lot of the people are talking, the people, I should be more specific, I've been listening to Jim and Sam on Sirius XM, and uh, it's quite surprising how much they drone on about politics, you know, but it's okay. I guess I'm at a point where I don't mind it too much right now just because, oh boy, am I going to sneeze? I don't mind it too much right now just because it's not something that I generally pay attention to. I know it is an election year. We're slowly going to approach that November. Is it November that the elections happen? Something like that. And all the debates and all that fun stuff is happening. And it is kind of just crazy to see some of the stuff that does go on surrounding the election and just what you learn about the people who are trying to run for the position to run the country or whatever, you know, it was really funny just because, so there are debates that occur, obviously, and then there's also just a lot of press-related events, you know, let's go here and do an interview, let's go here and do an interview, let's go here and do an interview, and uh, a lot of people getting grilled about sexual harassment, Mike Bloomberg, and, uh, you know, just stuff. And there was a crazy thing that happened. I think it's crazy. Yo, if you're running for president, you most definitely should know who the prime ministers of your neighboring countries are. That's right. Someone didn't know that. Now, I don't know the name. And after the gentleman on Telemundo had said the name to Amy, I keep keep forgetting her name, Amy Korbachev. I wrote it down. You know why I wrote it down? Because I knew I was going to have a hard time with it. And I really don't like pronouncing things incorrectly. What is her name? Uh, where are you? I just wrote... Oh, right here. Klobuchar. Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar. Yo, this Amy Klobuchar lady who just can't... Who, 
The Daily Show apparently made a montage of her because she kept saying this tweet that she sent to Donald Trump that she thought was just the funniest thing. She's like, the only way to get Donald Trump is with humor. You gotta, you gotta have humor. And then she drops this joke and it wasn't even that funny, but she's so super proud of it. And you know what? I gotta say for a moment, I totally feel that because there are a million and one things that I say in my own brain that I find hilarious that sometimes I say out loud and people are just like, yeah, okay. No. <laughs> yeah, no. That's not happening. That's not funny. I just have a very simple brain, so I can be amused by a very simple shit and very complex shit. But this thing was so funny. What did she say? He called her a snow woman. So I think the thing in the realm of humor with Trump and with any of the other candidates, which we kind of saw over the last little bit of them just trying to go after him lots, is that they're not going to be as funny as him. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just don't believe that. I think he has a very unique way of simplifying and distilling something and branding it really well, right? So he'll give, I think he gave like Mike Bloomberg the name Mini Mike, he gives people these weird little shortened branded nicknames that just land really well. And even if they're not accurate, they're just so funny. And I, I don't think anyone else is going to be able to compete with that. The level of comedy that Trump brings to the presidency is it's pretty interesting and it's entertaining and it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's kind of sad seeing other people try and kind of do it just because these people are... They've, they've operated in just this one realm, arena, in this one arena for so long that they don't really, they're just not good at bringing other stuff out. It just seems like Donald Trump has more of a funny bone than these people. And like, he's been on roasts and stuff. The guy obviously understands comedy to some degree. He's very simple-minded. And uh, those two things together, when you're trying to appeal to a lot of people, is just gonna work out better than some stuffy ass politician who makes a hair joke in 2020 about Donald Trump like it's funny. I wonder how your hair would do in a blizzard. What do you mean? What are you talking about? It's 2020, lady. You know, Donald Trump hair jokes are getting old. And he obviously doesn't care. So, um... It doesn't seem like there's much else that these people can get on. But anyways, watching these debates and watching this lady choke when, by the way, makes an appearance on Telemundo, Mexican TV, the guy who was interviewing her asked her what the president's name was or, or the prime minister's name of Mexico and if she knew anything about him at all. She didn't. She obviously tried to do that thing that people do where they answer the question that was asked with information that was totally irrelevant to the question altogether but he held her feet to the fire and he asked her again and he asked her again and then uh it ended up coming out that no she does not know who he is and i can't imagine that if you're going into mexico and you're talking to people and you don't even know their prime minister that they're going to have very much respect for you to begin with i mean i'm not saying i think trump would know but Trump's also not like, hey, I'm going to make an appearance on Telemundo and have a, have a conversation with a gentleman 
Good Lord. Anyways, it's been interesting listening to just Jim and Sam's coverage of the election, which, you know, I like more of a loose kind of not news, not newsly delivered um, synopsis, I guess, about that kind of stuff, just because I like the, the interspersed comedy and just making fun of certain things and other people talking about it, but it does get stale pretty fast. You know what I mean? It gets stale real fast, real quick, because it, it's still just the same thing over and over again. And I still just have a feeling in my gut that Trump will probably, probably take the throne in 2020 again. But hey, I guess we'll see. Maybe I should be open. <laughs> Maybe I just want Trump to be president. Because uh, it's also just funny to see people freak out about it. <laughs> That's probably the funniest thing about it, is how crazy people go over it. I don't even get it. But it's alright. You don't get it because you're not in that country. <laughs> no, I just don't think anybody in that position is that bad. I think it's a very high-stress, high-challenge job. And... um I like the idea of someone being there that just threatens the establishment so much that they're going fucking haywire, right? The impeachment trial, tra- impeachment trials, the impeachment trials happened, and obviously nothing came of it. Um, the The Democrats really just seem to be freaking out. They're kind of like kids that just whatever they got to do to get that kid in trouble on the playground, even if he ain't doing anything that particularly would warrant being in trouble. Let's just get him in trouble anyways. They're those annoying kids on the playground right now. Trying to be the bullies to the best bully ever. Good luck, bro. Good luck. Nancy Pelosi ripping shit up on TV and stuff. Good God. These are adults. It's so funny. We saw Jay, um, Big Jay Okerson, and he had made a really great... um, He had a really great bit about... The times we use the phrase, I'm an adult, and just some of the things we permit ourselves to do, <laughs> which are kind of childish, and say I'm an adult, or some of the things where you're, you're just like, no, I'm a fucking adult. I can do this thing and just be over the gross factor or whatever the heck the thing is. I'm butchering it because I'm not a professional comedian, but hey, I just got reminded of it. You know what I mean? Hmm. Welcome to the Mug Club. Everyone should have a Mug Club. You know? That's just my feeling on it. What else did I do? Okay, let's see. I wish I had my phone here. I could go through all the podcasts that I was listening to and remember some of the things that they talked about because it wasn't all just debates. Corey, oh, what's his name? Corey Feldman is releasing a movie soon. The Rape of Two Corys. Dude, that guy really creeps me out. I just find his voice to be super slimy, and there's just something about him that I do not like. And he was on Jim and Sam promoting his new movie that he's going to be making. Oh, my gosh. What is that? Whatever it is, it doesn't look good. Ugh. We were talking about ingrown hairs last night, and it looks like I might have one on my leg. Human stuff, yo. And I just noticed it because it looks like a giant volcano. Why? I don't understand. It doesn't hurt, though, so I guess I'm in a pretty good position, right? 
Anyways, Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman. Super creepy dude. You know what? I keep hearing about this this crazy, like, four-hour Michael Jackson documentary that I have not watched yet that apparently was horrific, and maybe it's something that I want to check out. I've been kind of curious. I thought about it yesterday, and thinking about it now, clearly. So maybe that's something that I need to do, is check it out. It's fun to talk about. It is definitely fun to talk about. Anyways, getting distracted by my human skin here. I have a big problem with any sort of blemishes or imperfections, and they don't happen often. So when they do happen, they really freak me out, and I'm like, oh God, this is it. This is the beginning of the end, isn't it? This is where the cancer starts growing and all that messed up stuff starts happening. <laughs> because shit, yo. Ooh. Oh, you might have just seen my panties, but that's okay. They're pretty cute. <laughs> I don't mind too much. Um, I feel like I have way more stuff that I could talk about, but my brain is really blanking just because of that really unfortunate sleep that I had last night. I almost decided that I'm just going to stay in bed and I'm not even going to get up and do this, but I also just felt really compelled. It's kind of a weird thing to just kind of engage in some weird activity like this where it's like I don't really understand why the need to do it is there but it is there and I'm gonna do it and sometimes I step in my own way and I don't do it and then I'm always like oh, I wanted to do that it's just something I find fun and I like to do it so just wake up you're gonna be tired anyway you didn't sleep that much last night even though I felt like I I felt like I phased in and out of sleep, you know what I'm saying? That shit is really not cool. But I was talking about intrusive thoughts, and then I started talking about all the the podcasts and stuff that I was listening to yesterday. Actually, now that I have my phone here, I can actually look at what I did watch. So much fun. There are just so many fucking podcasts, guys. Like... It's all there is, it seems, for entertainment. Like, I, it's very, uh, not very often that I sit and watch something now just because I want to be moving around. I'm not going to sit down and be static. I'm not going to sit down and be static. You know, I'm going to be moving around. I'm going to be at work. I'm going to be doing shit. And in order to get shit done, it's just so much easier to have the headphones on, walk around, do your thing, and listen to things. And, uh... Yes, your attention is a bit truncated, and you don't totally pay attention. You kind of weave in and out of the thing, but you hear the main stuff. And I just find that that is such a great way for me to pass time. I like keeping my brain engaged. So let's see what I got in here. Okay, so there is this great podcast. Well, I shouldn't say great. I've watched maybe like one and a bit episodes of it, but I really liked the episode I watched yesterday. So I was like, yay, super exciting. Um, Mean Inspiration, Annie Lederman um, is a super cute comedian chick. 
Guess who introduced me to her? <laughs> Obviously the same person that introduced me to all the things I love. Um, and she has Dan Soder on. It's my favorite podcast, which I don't think had anything come out yesterday because it was Sunday. I think they work Monday to Thursday. Is The Bonfire on Sirius XM Channel 95. Because those two are so funny. They're BFF and you can just tell they know each other real well. They're real tight. And uh, when two people have such great chemistry, it really does make for a great show. There is nothing like that. You know what I mean? It's great to see people interact so smoothly. So much so that they don't miss a beat between each other. And then they're comedians on top of that. So it's just good. It's just good to watch. Um, that one I would definitely recommend giving a shot, The Bonfire. It is such a good, like, it's it's a good dude podcast, but, you know, one of the things I love to do most is sit around and what, or well, sit around and listen to dudes talk because they always have way more interesting conversation than many girls that I've experienced. And, um, yeah, just that energy, that energy of, of bromance and camaraderie and just being so comfortable and having such a high level of chemistry with someone makes it just a very enjoyable experience. That energy sucks you in. I don't understand how not to be sucked in by people who have a good, high energy, positive, good, hilarious, not worried about no stupid shit, just saying whatever comes to mind makes it a lot more interesting and fun. So, anyways, Dan Soder was on Meanspiration, which is the Annie Lederman podcast, which is super fun. I highly recommend you check that out. There was another one I discovered yesterday, and the only reason I listened to it is obviously because Dan Soder was on it, and it's called The Irish Goodbye. It was episode 160 I listened to, and it was a lot of fun because they were three boys. They were all talking about growing up and, like, the rough kids they used to hang out with and, like... Dude, I can't believe how back in the day, like, earlier generations started smoking cigarettes at, like, 12 years old, 11 years old, and I'm like, Jesus, what the fuck, man? How are you even alive at 36 years old if you've been smoking since you were 12? That is fucking wild. But anyways, you know, talking about when they were kids and, like, all these rough kids they used to hang out with and, like, the toughest kid in class and the fights that they used to pick and just, like the way other people thought about it it's so funny to look back I don't remember knowing or being around anybody that was like known as you know like don't fuck with these guys they're assholes or whatever even in high school I guess Canadians are pretty tame compared to like Americans but I also lived in not shoddy parts of town so that could definitely be it too mm. Tim Dillon, of course, who was here yesterday in New Westminster. I'm kind of sad that I wasn't able to go and see it, but that's all right. He will be back or I will be in America to come see him. Um, the podcast is called The Extra Yard. Totally new to me. <clears throat> and any conversation with Tim Dillon just tends to end up in kind of a lofty place. I really like him. I like his takes. I like his tone. I just, he does, he has a very irreverent, I don't give a fuck kind of tone and him breaking down Hollywood is probably one of my favorite things ever. And even politics. Anything he breaks down, he's just real good at it. He's interesting to listen to. He is a great one-man show. That guy can talk and talk about whatever. It's just, it's great. Such an inspiration. 
<sighs> Martin Dillon, nope, that's all done from yesterday. So that's just YouTube. I started watching the best of the Tim Dillon show. Oh, and then I sometimes autoplay will just continue to play. So I started re-listening to a Legion of Skanks episode that I listened to last week, which I don't totally remember listening to because I think I was hanging out with Ryan. And, you know, like when we listen to stuff together, he tends to be, he he wants to talk, right? So we end up having conversations over the podcast because they'll say something in the podcast that sparks a conversation between us or some sort of inquisition that we start asking each other questions about whatever the topic is and then we just get on our own conversations and then you got to pause it or you're not paying attention to it so you end up missing big chunks <laughs> but that shit's really fun too you know what I mean like listening to something when you get to listen to stuff that you like with someone that you like it extra enhances the experience like duh why wouldn't it um I don't really know what other than that is really sticking out of my head. You know what I mean? Um, but it was causing a lot of intrusive thoughts yesterday. And I, and I know that the only way that I can kind of keep track a little bit is by writing some stuff down. But sometimes you look at your notes the next day of things that you randomly thought about and your thoughts just seem so broken and incoherent and incoherent successively. You know what I mean? Like the, the progress or as you go through the day's notes, it just doesn't make sense, the things that you're you're talking about. You'd think that maybe one line would connect to the next, and some of them do, but I gotta tell you, man, it's all confusing. I gotta put this right here. What I do think, though, that is super cool, which I just realized, I think this is episode 199, you know what I mean, of the Waking Up Thoughtcast. If you've made it this far, thanks so much for coming around and hanging out. It's real cool to have you there. And uh, it's it's been an interesting thing. You know what I mean? I'm going to keep doing it. There's just so many hours of me yapping and yapping and yapping. And uh, I feel like I've gotten more comfortable doing it over time. Eventually, it just has to be a thing where it's like, click on stream, go, you know? Um, I think w what I need to really get over is first thing in the morning is kind of a challenging, weird time to stream just because, you know, being on camera is just kind of odd, but I'm not going to talk about that. Interacting in the morning is a little weird. I'm a little rusty, but that's like maybe the best time to try and jump over the hurdle of feeling any of this complainery bullshit that I'm just doing is just fucking do it. It's just fun. It's fun to interact. It's fun to do those things. And that's what needs to happen. You know, I just need to be a little more in the game. But it feels good to do something and continue to do it and just feel like you're getting better at it over time. I'm not seeing any awful negative feedback or anything like that. And any that I have just is generally incoherent and doesn't make sense. And it starts from a place that just does not make sense. Like, I'm never trying to be difficult to understand. And if I am difficult for you to understand... That's because 
whatever I'm saying is just hitting your brain, getting cut up with all your fucking childhood and your bullshit, and then you're spitting it back at me in a way that doesn't make sense to me because I didn't mean it the way that you absorbed it or some shit like that, you know what I mean? But it's also something I'm always willing to kind of talk about. People are welcome to, we can stream and have conversations, but that's not something people like to do. And um, people tend to be a little bit chicken shit, you know what I mean? To actually have a conversation with somebody that they disagree with. And it's like, I don't want to sit here and get into a text battle with you. I don't have the fucking time. But I'd rather, and I would, make time to have a conversation with you if that's something that you would like to do. If you feel like you need to talk about something or if you feel like you just want to disagree with me because whatever. Dude, let's just have a conversation. You know what I mean? That's just, that's going to be the MO moving forward. And um, here's an interesting twist to this is like, sometimes I have a habit where I don't talk first and I will text, but that's with people that I'm tight with. You know what I mean? It's just easier to organize your thoughts sometimes in text and send what you think and the order in which you want those thoughts presented to the person and the words you want to use and and specifics and whatever else it is that makes it easier via texting to do that. But then have the conversation after, you know what I mean? If it's really that important, you can do that. Let the person, it's like the best of both worlds. Let someone text it out and then talk about it. Address each thing in the text. This is totally a tangent, but this is something that Victoria and I were talking about dealing with relationship problems, right? Her and her man are just, they have like a a little bit of a, a workaround in the way that they're able to have larger conversations about things that are affecting their relationship is we live in an age where we do text a lot and I do understand that, but a lot does get lost in that text. In the case of some sort of heated argument or whatever, if there's just things you need to get out and you, you want to type them out first just to get the ball rolling to have the conversation, ugh. why? Just to get the conversation ball rolling? Not the worst thing in the world, right? You get a few moments to kind of organize. Sometimes it's really hard to stay away from the person that you love when you're just in kind of an emotional rut too and you need to express. And if you know anything about me, um, you know that expression is my main mode of just getting things out there and not having them stick in my head and just continuously build pressure, which is what a lot of people will do. If you need to text at first, do that, but also do talk. And uh, yeah, that, that goes for anything, right? You can always initiate something by text and then have the conversation later with all the points that you would have missed had you not written it down or not texted it, just going off memory. When you get emotional, you just get dumber. Your executive functions are dampened. It makes sense to either Go away until your emotions have calmed or to text it out and try and be, you have to be pretty involved if you're texting something about how you feel or whatever the fuck, right? Your problem. And then as you text sometimes, you're like, oh, look at this shit. This doesn't make sense. I'm just freaking out. It just gives you an additional kind of filter to make you look at 
that causes you to look at just where you're at, you know? Can't know where you're going unless you know where you're at. Can't even figure out a way to get there unless you know where you are and what way you're facing. So express, my friends, because you only live once and it's an important thing to do. Anyways, I think what I'm going to do now, because of all this incoherent babbling that I have going on in my mind and all these intrusive thoughts that are like, hey, you should do this now, 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 try and do this now, blah, 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 is I have a couple of articles picked up. Let me switch to article mode and uh, that can be read now. Okay, okay. Oh, hi, we are back. I needed to have a different scene for this because, uh, duh, you know what I'm saying? All right, how sad happens. First of all, I thought sad was seasonal effectiveness disorder or seasonal affective disorder. I don't know, but that's what I thought it was. But it's not. It's social anxiety disorder, which I would imagine a lot of people feel. Because people get all weird in social situations and then they freak out about them because a whole bunch of reasons, many, many reasons, all the reasons, it's a disaster. Let's check it out, okay? How sad happens, the development of social anxiety disorder. Man, I have this itchy spot in my nose that is making me want to sneeze right now. So if I suddenly sneeze, I apologize. I will try to mute the mic. Apologies in advance. Social anxiety disorder may be an extreme form of trait social anxiety. You often hear people proclaim that they do their own thing and don't care what other people think or say. <laughs> I'm one of those people. This, of course, is silliness. For one, the things we do are never wholly our own. The brain itself is a social organ shaped by social interaction. Your internal experience, your thought, and feeling processes are cast in a social mold. I may write my own story, but society gave me language, writing, and the concept of story. So, I think it's just like a, a kind of a vague thing to say, I don't care about any, what anybody says. I mean, obviously I care about what the people I care about say, but widely what the world thinks, I do not care. So, I always feel like, I don't like being told that it's silly that I don't care because about most of the population, I don't. And that's just what I'm referring to. I'm not like, man, 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 I don't really care what you have to say, even though we're like best friends and have been best friends for like 10 years. No, I'm selective about whose opinion and whatever I care about. But that's the social kind of network that I'm trying to function in. So it makes sense that I would care about that. It doesn't make sense that I would care about anything else, really. <laughs> See how I got all defensive there? <laughs> I don't fucking care, okay? <clears throat> Society even gave me the very concept of me. Our sense of self, the I and I do my own thing, is largely constructed socially in the process of comparing ourselves to others, engaging others' responses to us. To wit, are you a kind person? If yes, how do you know that? Most likely, you know you're kind because one, you figured out what behaviors are defined as kind in society and engage regularly in those behaviors. And two, people have commented on your kindness and referred to you as a kind person. The truth is we all care about what others say and think to a degree. Humans are social creatures. We survive and thrive only in well-coordinated groups. We need to belong, and so we have to care about what others say and think about us, how they perceive us, and how they treat us. 
Our lives quite literally depend on it. So, of course, I think it's super important to be social and to have your own group and to pick people that are going to complement your attributes and whose attributes you will also complement and and whose like negatives can be balanced out with yours just basically by understanding, right? So that's why you kind of got to be selective about your groups because you want to be able to be in a zone where you can be yourself, you can you can be the flawed person that you are and other people will understand those things because maybe their flaws complement yours or whatever the case may be. Outside of that, right, it's, it's like your own social world matters the most to you. But I always feel the need to kind of clarify that because I just need you to know that I really don't care that much, okay? I don't. I don't care what anyone says or anyone thinks. Unless I love you. Then I care. Otherwise, given this, it is clear why our antennas are well-tuned to pick up and react strongly to others' criticism or negativity. From an evolutionary perspective, such concern is adaptive because it helps us maintain our standing within the group thus enhancing our chances for successful survival and reproduction. Which, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. However, every adaptation comes at a cost, and every strength creates its own vulnerabilities. When our adaptive concern with negative social judgment becomes pervasive, extreme, and all-consuming to the point of hindering our ability to function, the psychological adaptation becomes a psychopathology known as social anxiety disorder. Sad manifests differently in different people, but it has certain commonly seen characteristics. Y'all ready for this? Listen. Listen! Linda, listen! Individuals with social anxiety disorder are typically shy when meeting new people, quiet in groups, and withdrawn in unfamiliar social settings. When they interact with others, they might or might not show overt evidence of discomfort. For example, blushing, not making eye contact but invariably experience intense emotional or physical symptoms, or both. For example, fear, heart racing, sweating, trembling, trouble concentrating. You know, that like handshake people get, right? People's hands shake a little bit. Like they've got social Parkinson's. And they're all clammy. (laughs) And they get real nervous. They crave the company of others, but shun social situations for fear of being found out as unlikable, stupid, or boring. Accordingly, they avoid speaking in public, expressing opinions, or even fraternizing with peers. In some situations, this can lead to such individuals being mistakenly labeled as snobs. People with social anxiety disorder are typified typified, by low self-esteem and high self-criticism. I like the combination of high self-esteem and high self-criticism myself. anxiety disorders are the most prevalent disorders and sad is one of the most prevalent anxiety disorders nih data suggests that the past year prevalence of sad among u.s adults aged 18 or older is 7.1 percent it is more common in females an estimated 12.1 percent of u.s adults experience sad at some time in the course of their lives sad does not usually appear alone In fact, it is highly comorbid with other anxiety disorders, depression, and substance disorders. Uh 
All right. Up to 90% of people who are diagnosed with SAD in their lifetimes will be diagnosed with another mental health disorder. SAD has an early age of onset, by age 11 in about 50% and by age 20 in approximately 80% of individuals. Ooh, being 11 years old and having social anxiety disorder has got to be so incredibly crippling. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's not fun at any point, I'm sure, but I feel like it would be more difficult to cope with as a child who's like going through puberty, getting into... Anyways. The development of SAD is not yet fully understood and appears to involve several possible pathways, but recent research suggests that the disorder may not be an entity in itself, but rather an extreme and debilitating form of what is known as trait social anxiety, a tendency to feel anxious in a wide range of social situations. Trait social anxiety, it turns out, is strongly predicted by what is known as behaviorally inhibited temperament in infancy. Behaviorally inhibited infants show high negative affect in unfamiliar situations and act cautiously around unfamiliar people, objects, and events. Behavioral inhibition is strongly heritable and tends to persist throughout childhood, often manifesting as shy, socially avoidant, and non-assertive behavior. Okay. Oh, it's it's quite a intense thing that your developmental years, um, your your infant years, are so critical to how you're going to interact with the world as an adult. You know, um, obviously heritability is pretty. It's just a thing. It's a thing that has to be dealt with. But I feel like heritability not necessarily can be overridden but I think it can certainly be course corrected by just the right nurturing but you know the jury is still out on whether it's mostly nature or nurture that can cause that change in behavior and uh, I'm pretty conflicted about that too just because obviously those two things interact to produce a manifestation of something They're both necessary. Maybe it's different degrees for different things, you know? But they're both there. Um, Let's see. Behavioral inhibition, which predisposes infants toward anxious reactions, may be necessary for trait social anxiety to develop, but it is not sufficient. Certain environmental conditions must be present if the infant's genetic predisposition is to end up expressing itself as a fully formed adult personality trait. In the case of trait social anxiety, such environmental conditions may be related to parental and peer environments. For example, parental and peer rejection has been shown to predict the development of social anxiety in behaviorally inhibited children, often through the consequent development of anxious relational schemas, cognitive representations that prime individuals to perceive themselves as socially inadequate, others as judgmental, and social interactions in general as negative. Remember that article I read yesterday where I was talking about how, or the, sorry, the person who wrote the article was talking about how framing is incredibly important. Now, I'm not saying that this is solely a framing issue, but it certainly does help to not see social situations um, or yourself in a social situation as inadequate because it tends to manifest that. You know what I mean? The, the way you think about something tends to bring that into being. It's it's crazy how effectively we placebo ourselves in so many ways to get in our own way and make ourselves feel inadequate. 
and then we behave inadequately in accordance with our own judgments of whatever that social situation is. You're getting feedback, you know, from the other people around you, what have you. But it doesn't help to frame others as judgmental. Even though we are, we all judge. We all observe our environments and we make judgments on those environments because certain things evoke certain feelings. And hey, it's just fun to share those things. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. You know what I mean? I could see someone out there who's like the nicest person, but if they look grungy as fuck, I'm going to have a judgment about them based on their appearance that could totally not be in line with who the person is inside. But that's just part of being in the world. You know what I mean? Seeing a social interaction as negative too, yeah, that sucks, especially because we just have a deep need to connect with people. And when we don't, and we're telling ourselves all these bad stories about how we're inadequate or the social situation just isn't robust enough for you or whatever it is, it just prevents you from making those connections, right? You might pass over somebody who's great for you as a friend, as a whatever, simply because of of these issues which can develop from childhood boo okay the uh, this elastic process by which the early environment shapes the development of specific genetic traits that are adaptive in it is called conditional adaptation trait social anxiety appears to be one such conditional adaptation in which cues of social threat in the early environment promote the development of trait social anxiety as a protective damage limiting strategy We all like to protect ourselves from being hurt, but bitch, you know that ain't real, right? If you live and you're alive, you're going to be hurt at some point. Embrace it. Enjoy it. (laughs) Alas, trait social anxiety may not be protective in situations where early and late environments are misaligned. In other words, a childhood rife with social threats could trigger the development of trait social anxiety in behaviorally inhibited children as a protective mechanism. This would be adaptive in situations where continuity between the childhood and adulthood environments in fact existed. Yet for many children in modern societies, early environments are not necessarily predictive of later ones. This mismatch manifests in two primary ways. First, Social threats in general are now less likely to have dire life or death consequences than in prehistoric times. Thank goodness for that. Second, as social life has become more complex and dynamic, and as childcare has become less of a collective effort, the social environment of childhood often does not represent the social environment of adulthood. The mismatch is where sad may emerge from traits social anxiety. So just an aside, um, I can't remember what book it was that I read. It might have been Sex at Dawn where he was kind of describing the setup of kind of pre-modern men or like we refer to them as cavemen or whatever you want to call them, where raising a child was a communal thing. You know what I mean? People lived together in like communes. They all lived around each other. Neighbors were like BFFs pretty much. And everybody would take care of everybody's kids. Um, And I think that is where that hyper-social part of us probably developed from, is when that started happening. Um, Now we don't do that very much. You know, if you just go outside and look at your neighborhood, how often, first of all, how often do you say hi to your neighbor? Never mind letting people, like, people sending their kids to you and shit, you know what I mean? Um, And I think that's detrimental. I think it kind of stunts 
people's social development. Yeah, it's great to go to school and stuff, but you have less of a sense of community in places like this where your houses are so tightly packed together and you're so close, yet there's almost zero interaction with anybody that you live around. So, I mean, why wouldn't you want to damage limiting less stress situation when being inside becomes less stressful and you don't feel as safe because you don't know everybody around, you don't want to be around, and then you don't develop that social prowess through your childhood and, and through your child life because our parents just want to keep us away now. You know what I mean? It's kind of a sad thing that is that has kind of happened where people are kind of more separated. But I do digress. <clears throat> By way of analogy, a mind trained inside a war zone will be ill-suited to a peaceful environment. Growing up in a war zone, a child's duck-and-cover reaction to loud noises and fear of strangers, for example, would be adaptive as the noises are likely to be bombs and strangers on the street may be hostile and unpredictable. However, if the child ends up later living in a peaceful city where loud noises are unlikely to be bombs and where street crowds are mostly peaceful tourists, then these same fear habits would be maladaptive and ineffective. In other words, disordered. In sum, if this new thinking about SAD finds further empirical support, it may eventually help point us in the direction of developing preventative measures by which early intervention with socially inhibited infants and children may reduce their odds of developing a full-blown disorder in adulthood. Dude, maybe we just need to love our neighbors more. You know what I mean? Not be super helicopter parents where you're like so afraid your child's gonna get molested that you don't let them go play outside and stuff like I don't remember the last time I saw kids playing outside probably last summer and they don't leave this general area you know what I mean they don't go to the park or I don't see them going anywhere or hanging out with friends they all just kind of stay within their little house block when we were kids we used to run around and go to the park and shit and Dude, my parents were obviously not happy with that, but you got to let kids explore and do all that stuff and let them get comfortable in their environment. And parents, especially new mothers, you have to be pretty active with your children. You know, you need to be with them, especially for that first year. It's super critical. They need that bonding so that they feel comfortable in the world because that's where their first that is their first place of comfort is right here with mom. And if they don't get that and there's not much of a connection there, they're just going to be anxious. Like children who don't spend time with their mother in the first year of their infancy tend to be a little bit more on the anxious side. It's just a pattern. You know what I mean? That's your first point of contact that is supposed to make you comfortable. Your intermediary between the environment and and you is, is mom. So super important I don't know what's going on with my nose but it's real pissing me off real pissing me off (laughs) all right next one should we do another I think we should how's that happens all right I shall move this yay what we can learn from people with high self-control The relationship between self-control and goal-related outcomes is examined. Now, this is super important. It's like a reminder for me because I'm always setting goals and they always just, I fly right over them because I get distracted with some other shit. As much as I, as good as I am at organizing things, when it comes to organizing my own shit, it can be 
way more challenging. I tend to procrastinate on those things more. And I notice that about other people too, right? So like there will be things that I'll just like intervene and be like, I can help you take care of this because it's just, it kind of helps me in a weird way where I'm like, if I'm doing it for them, why can't I do it for me? And then it encourages me to do it. But again, I'm getting tangential. So let's continue with this shit. What we can learn from people with high self-control. First of all, what is this whole self-control thing? Okay, self-control refers to the ability to resist impulses and conflicting desires in pursuit of goal-directed behaviors. For instance, a person who intends to lose weight must resist the temptation of eating junk food. The temptation is therefore a threat to the person's sense of self-control. Threats, be they everyday distractions and temptations or more serious ones like gambling addiction or alcohol abuse, make the pursuit of important goals difficult. Many of us believe we would be more successful if we had more self-control, but why exactly are high self-control people successful? In today's post, I review an article by Stavrova and colleagues published in the October issue of European Journal of Social Psychology which examines potential mechanisms linking self-control and success. God damn it. God damn it. My nose is so itchy. Mm. Three explanations for the link between self-control and success. Why are people with greater self-control more successful at achieving their goals? Perhaps because they employ effective strategies, for example, develop good habits. Alternatively, fewer of their desires might conflict with their goals, so they are not distracted or tempted as often as others. For instance, the desire to watch TV for only an hour a day would not conflict with the goal of obtaining good grades. Aside from habit strength and goal-desire conflict, a third explanation suggests that high self-control individuals choose authentic goals. Let us examine this explanation in more detail. Research shows we are more effective in pursuing goals that are either authentic or related to our values and interests. Babang. Authentic goals reflect one's true self, who we are on the inside, not one's public self, who we are around others. Authentic goals are chosen not because they are pleasurable or socially desirable, but because they are personally valuable and meaningful. There it is. Self-control and authentic goals. But why is self-control related to authentic goals? Why don't individuals with low self-control also choose authentic goals? Perhaps it is because they feel vulnerable, so their primary concern is self-protection and not selecting goals that reflect who they are deep inside. In contrast, individuals with greater self-control may feel a greater sense of power and freedom to act in ways consistent with their true selves and to actualize their potential. Another possibility is that the goals are the same for both groups, but only those with high self-control incorporate these goals over time into their self-concept. Thus, they may appear more authentic to them. Researching self-control, goal authenticity, and goal progress. Did it really help to write things down? If there's anything that you want to achieve or a place you want to start at or something you want to start doing, to write down your progress, like, Not every day, maybe, you know, like check in once a month and kind of see where you're at and how you feel about whatever your goal is. And if you assess enough, you'll be able to tell if if it feels like it's something you really want to do. You know, there's just some things that you fall into. And if your goals can surround the things that you fall into, which is, I guess, what they're talking about here with the authentic. What is it? Goal authenticity. You're probably more likely to succeed. And if you like doing the thing 
that is going to help you with that self-actualization. Like, it just feels good to do things that are meaningful to you and that make you feel like an actualized person, like like you're really bringing yourself forward. Bring yourself forth into the world. Don't hide away behind that face and that body. Just let it go. Let us now turn to the paper by Sevrova and co-authors and their investigations on the veracity of the above mechanisms. The first study explored whether people with high self-control choose goals related to their true or public self. A sample of 294 participants from Amazon Mechanical Turk, average age of 38 years, 56% female, completed a self-control measure sample. Sample question. I'm good at resisting temptation. Oh, we're almost done here. Nope. Whoop. Sorry about that, guys. I just looked at the time, so I need to be aware of that. They were then asked to name five goals they had been pursuing recently. For example, pay down credit card debts to indicate whether the goals were associated with their true or public self and to estimate how much progress they had been making towards these goals. Results suggested that the participants, especially those with higher self-control, believed that their goals reflected their true selves compared with public selves. Individuals with higher self-control had also made greater progress toward their goals. The second study's example consisted of 343 students, average age of 20 years, 79% female. The results replicated the previous finding, showing a positive association between trait self-control, choice of authentic goals, and goal progress. These associations were independent of existing associations between goal progress and both habit strength and goal desire conflicts. I can't remember who said the quote, but someone had said, excellence is a habit. So excellence occurs when you have excellent habits that are conducive to excellence, you know. So if you want to reach your goals, you have to have habits, good habits, that are going to feed that goal, to fuel the behavior that feeds the goal. These associations were independent of existing associations between goal progress and both habit strength and goal desire conflicts. For the third investigation, researchers attempted to rule out the possibility that higher self-control individuals did not select more authentic goals, but simply assumed their goals reflected their true selves merely because they had more progress toward them. The initial sample consisted of 261 students who were asked to set goals for the following week, rate its authenticity, and report on their progress toward their goal the following week. One week later, 217 students, average age 20 years, 79% female, returned to report their progress. The findings indicated that students with higher self-control had a greater tendency to set authentic goals, which allowed them to make greater goal progress. Ugh. Concluding thoughts on choosing goals for success. The overall findings suggest that high-control individuals are successful because when compared to low-control people, they are more likely to have less goal-desire conflict, rely on strong habits. There it is. Choose authentic goals. This process is independent of the first two. Habit strength, goal-desire conflict, and goal authenticity might also interact. For instance, choosing authentic goals often means less likelihood of being distracted by desires that conflict with the goal. So what can we learn from the success of high-control people? 1. We need to develop effective strategies and strong habits. When adaptive behaviors become habitual, we spend less energy and self-control resisting temptations. For instance, if you have a piece of fruit with your breakfast cereal regularly enough, unhealthy substitutes will not tempt you as often or as strongly. Very true. 
Of course, good strategies and habits must lead to a good goal. Therefore, the second point is to examine your goals carefully to determine, one, how often they conflict with your other goals and desires, and two, to what extent they relate to your authentic self. Remember, the more your goals reflect your true self, the less self-control would be required in their pursuit, which is really nice because it's actually very taxing to think and to change something that is so a part of the core of who you are as a person. So I guess what it's trying to say here is work with yourself. Create goals that are going to be strategically easier to obtain just because you have inclinations and propensities and personality traits that'll make you more successful in this area or that just based on whatever the profile is that you have of traits, right? Yeah, man, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, that was the articles. That was the articles. And we're back. Just so that I can tell you that I hope you have a great day. Thanks for hanging out and listening. Thanks for putting up with the the clunker McClunkerson today with my lack of sleep and my excitement before bed because I got that laser light stuff. Hopefully tonight will be a night of deeper and and more comfortable and consistent slumber. But until then, I got some life to do, yo. I gotta work. I gotta make that Skrilla. And uh, just a quick reminder, if you need to find me, I'm in the description box, okay? Everywhere you need to be to find me. That's where it is. Until next time, have a great day. Big kiss. Bye.